Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're going to be talking about a very important and very new topic that we have not covered on Go Green Radio in the last almost nine years that we've been on the on the air. We're going to be talking about a brand new uh, research uh, paper that is out from the University of Canterbury that shows that some very common herbicides that we can get in any hardware store um, – can cause antibiotic resistance. And I'm very excited to have the guests that we have today talking about this. We couldn't be in better hands. Our guest is Dr. Michael Hansen. He is a senior staff scientist with Consumers Union, which is the publisher of Consumer Reports. And he works primarily on food safety issues. In fact, Dr. Hansen has testified at hearings in Washington, D.C., many states, and in Canada on issues such as mad cow disease, GMOs, pest management, and antibiotics in animal feed. Welcome to Go Green Radio, Dr. Hansen. We're so glad to have you on today. Uh, Glad I could be on as well. Well, this is a really hot topic and something that that really caught my attention as soon as it came across my desk. A recent study, as I mentioned, from the University of Canterbury found that, and I quote, bacteria respond to exposure to herbicides by changing how susceptible they are to antibiotics used in human and animal medicine. And I'd like to begin by asking you, what prompted this study in the first place? Well, this study is actually a follow-up to a previous study that they had done and published three years ago, uh, well, yes, uh, roughly three years ago in 2015. And in that study, what they had done is they had looked at three herbicide formulations, and they chose ones that uh, are among the top-used herbicides in both the U.S. and the world, that, that is glyphosate, dicamba, and 2,4-D. Um, they're also engineering resistance, uh, these GMO crops that are resistant to herbicides. Most of them are resistant to glyphosate, but now that they're weeds, that there are all these super weeds that are becoming resistant to glyphosate, they're starting to make plants that also are resistant to uh, dicamba and 2,4-D. Anyway, so this previous study looked at these herbicides and said, could they have an effect on uh, bacteria, their, the phenotype of uh, whether they can resist uh, antibiotics? And so what you have to realize this is, is this is an interesting area because there's actually three different ways that a bacteria can have resistance to an antibiotic. Those are called intrinsic acquired and adaptive. The intrinsic resistance is that just all the bacteria in a given um, species often have an intrinsic level of res- resistance to certain anti-antibiotics. It's sort of built in. The second category acquired that's the stuff we think of when we think of gene transfer, that you're selecting for a bacteria that are more, resi- more resistant to an antibiotic because you're basically selecting for bacteria that aren't killed by a certain concentration of that antibiotic. So that means you're selecting for new mutations, which can either 
uh, rise de novo, or these resistance elements can be on little pieces of DNA that can be swapped between uh, bacteria, right? So that's the um, acquired. And then the third category is this adaptive resistance. And when you realize that some of the ways that bacteria resist uh, antibiotics, since they're often used uh, in the environments that these bacteria to live in, um, the way they protect themselves is, for example, you might need a certain concentration of an antibiotic within the bacteria to kill it, but the bacteria can have defense mechanisms such as a pump, which pumps the antibiotic out of the cell. There can also be holes in the cell membranes that are letting um, molecules of a certain size such as antibiotics through. And so by controlling some of those things, you could actually, for example, if the uh, bacteria decided to rev up the efflux pump, the rate at which it's pumping antibiotics out of the cell, if they increase that, say, 10 or 20-fold, then that means the same level of antibiotics would have less of an effect on them because they wouldn't be interior to the cell. So what that first study that was done was finding, found that environmentally relevant concentrations of those three herbicides actually changed the resistance phenotype of two different bacteria that they looked at, salmonella, which is a pathogen, and then E. coli, which is both an obligate uh, inhabitant in the human gut, but there are strains that can be highly pathogenic. So they basically looked uh, at um, these three different herbicides, how they affected uh, these um, two different bacteria, and then what they did is they added antibiotics from mm-hmm. five different classes of, anti- of antibiotics and looked at the rate at which the bacteria were resistant to them. And if there was a low level of, for example, herbicide in the background, did that increase or decrease the bacteria's sensitivity to an antibiotic? And what that first study in 2015 found is that there actually was something there, that these levels you could find in the environment of... Uh, herbicide that in the presence of an antibiotic, they could actually make uh, bacteria uh, less susceptible. Oh, boy. Right? So and, that and, makes right. them appear to be uh, more resistant, and that means they can survive higher levels of the uh, antibiotic, and that increases the possibility that you'll get some kind of uh, mutation. So that's not a good thing. That study, when it came out, um, was sort of the first of its kind because most studies have just looked at whether bacteria are killed or not. They haven't looked at any of these more subtle questions of, well, maybe bacteria aren't killed, but their their level of resistance might slightly change, right? And that mm-hmm. can affect the efficiency of use of antibiotics, right? Because when you give an antibiotic to a patient, you have it has to reach a certain level in the body before it will kill all the, bacteria, all the bad bacteria, right? That's mm-hmm. called the 
often that's called the clinical breakpoint. So that's the concentration of antibiotic you want in your body, wherever that bacteria is, because if the concentration is lower than that, it's not going to kill all the bacteria, and some of those uh, bacteria might be slightly more resistant. So again, you're selecting for this resistance. That's not a good thing. Now that we know that uh, bacteria can modify their, quote, phenotype uh, in terms of resistance, that's not a good thing. And so this study showed that these low levels of herbicides can act that way. When the study came out, it was criticized. Monsanto, who uh, makes... Uh, Roundup, they said, well, yes, this is an interesting study, but there's problems with it. They only looked at formulated products, right? So you can't tell whether the effect that they're seeing is due to glyphosate or dicamba or um, 2,4-D, that is to the active ingredient, or whether it's due to any of the other chemicals that might be in those herbicide formulations. So they criticize them for that. They also criticize that you didn't uh, look carefully enough to um, figure out what the mechanism of action would be. So if, if you're saying that the rate at which the antibiotic was being pumped out of the cell, that's called things that do that are called efflux pumps. Mm-hmm. They said you could have looked and seen were there more genes that are involved in efflux pumps where they you know, turned up more. And that. So this study mm-hmm. was a follow-up, and it basically looked at, it was similar to the first study, only they compared uh, all three of the active ingredients, that is uh, glyphosate, 2,4-D, and dicamba, in their pure forms. So that, that means they took care of the criticism from the uh, chemical companies, and they looked at the formulated a product, and they also looked at two different surfactants, things that might be added to the herbicide formulation to help uh, its efficacy. Now, those things that are added to the herbicide formulations, the two that they tested, also happen to be substances that are allowed to be added to food that FDA has said is okay. And so they basically then did this study again, looked at both E. coli and salmonella, looked at these three different herbicides and then looked at the rate at which there was resistance to five different classes of antibiotics. And what did they find? And they, what they found was to go beyond the first study, they found, yes, they found the same uh, results. They also found that the active ingredient had the same effect. So it wasn't just the whole formulated product, but the active ingredient by itself was having this effect, um, which was lower than the effect of the overall product, but it's it's there in the active ingredient, and they did find an effect with the uh, two products that they looked at, the two surfactants they uh, mm-hmm. looked at. So they were able to show, yes, this is, a, this is a, a, a phenomenon that's real. Yes, it's being caused by the active ingredient. They also then went down and did a transcriptomic analysis. They looked at the, at the gene level at things that are being turned on and look at the rate at which they're turned on. And they were able to show that the genes that by doing uh, certain studies that the, uh, that the genes that were being 
upregulated key genes in this adaptive response. Uh, these are ones that, uh, uh, and genes that encode for efflux pumps or porins, which is, again, the size of the holes in the uh, uh, membranes, they were able to show that the, those particular genes were at increased activity. Wow. And, so and the- they, they were able to show that each of the herbicides caused a response that was unique to each of them. So that means you couldn't make a generalization and say, you know, glyphosate has the same effect or dicamba has. It was all different. Most of them, they, uh, they decreased the susceptibility, right? So they made mm-hmm. the uh, bacteria appear to be um, more resistant to the antibiotic. But in some cases, they right. made I- them more susceptible. Well, and so they would be so they would be killed more uh, more readily. Anyway, the point is, and that's is one of the things you, that I want to make sure that we cover in great detail in the next segment. We're going to take just a very quick break, uh, but when we come back, we have much more with Dr. Hansen. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. And if you've just tuned in, 
Let me catch you up. Today we're talking about a brand new study that's out that shows that commonly used herbicides can actually cause antibiotic resistance. And our guest today is Dr. Michael Hansen, who's a senior scientist at Consumers Union, which is the publisher of Consumer Reports. And we've been talking about this study that shows that not only the active ingredients, but also some of the inert ingredients, the surfactants, in three commonly, the three most commonly used herbicides in the world um, actually cause antibiotic resistance. And we were just beginning to touch on this, Dr. Hansen, before the break. But, you know, you were mentioning that some of the surfactants that are tested are not only found in herbicides, they're also found in foods um, and used as emollients, like in ice cream, cosmetics, mouthwash, and even some pharmaceuticals. And so talk to us a little bit about the antibiotic resistance at the concentrations that are allowed in food and food-grade products. Well, um, what you're talking about is these uh, these were data on the two additives that they looked at. Is One was um, polysorbate 20, I believe it's called, tween. Uh, it's common name, hold on, is tween uh, 20. And then the other... Compound. I think it's CMC. Yeah, CMC, which is carbo carboxy methyl cell cell cellulose. So it's polysorbate eighty, which is tween eighty, and um, CMC. And so it's those uh, particular items. They also. It's not that they're that they created resistance. It's what they're doing is they're causing the phenotype of the bacteria to appear to be more resistant. And that can have an effect, as I said, for treatment failure. It can also increase the possibility that uh, a genetic uh, resistance will arise. And that's based on previous studies that have shown that sublethal responses of bacteria to various toxins increases the probability that they that they acquire these heritable uh, resistance genes. So, uh, what these herbicides and this uh, CMC and Tween eighty are doing is they're making um, they're increasing the uh, probability that resistance is um, happening and. What's problematic is both with the tween 80 and the CMC, they're allowed as um, additives to foods at Mm -hmm. concentrations higher than the ones shown to cause an effect in uh, this this uh, paper. So that just says that, and they're trying to make the broader point that many things that are, quote, biocides, uh, they can have these adverse effects and that they can uh, impact uh, resistance in bacteria. And this is something that we now should be taking account of and considering because if we want to preserve the use of antibiotics for a medical uh, purposes for any period of that time, we have to say safeguard that stuff. So we have to try to ensure that resistance doesn't occur, but also try to manage it 
so that it won't occur. And that right. takes understanding some of the complex behavior of these bacteria. And what this paper, I think, uh, raises is that we start to have to, uh, in a regulatory sense, start considering before things like these herbicides are allowed on the market, we should be asking what is the impact that they might be having on uh, bacterial resistance. Certainly. Now, one of the things that I wasn't clear on when I read this study, and, you know, I'm a layman, I'm not a scientist, so this escaped me. How exactly is it that humans and animals would absorb, you know, these active ingredients of the herbicides that may cause antibiotic resistance? Is it through ingestion, skin, inhaling fumes, agricultural water runoff? I mean, what, what's the method by which these chemicals Well, what they point out in uh, the article is the levels that they were testing where they were seeing effects are below the levels that are permitted in foods, below the maximum residue limits, right? So that means it probably, uh, even though the way you're exposed to these uh, products, is it's going to be both through the diet, that is not only on the food you eat, but in certain areas, since, for example, glyphosate is the most widely used herbicide in the United States uh, by far, you can look, there's actually many uh, groundwater samples that you can find low levels of uh, glyphosate in. So there's exposure in water. There uh, also, since it can be used, uh, and it's also true with 2,4-D and dicamba, that they can be used as herbicides on home and gardens. So, for example, you could have an application in the home. Your dog could run through it, and then your kids that are playing with that dog, they can get an exposure from the dog or rolling around in the treated yard. So there are other ways to, uh, to get exposure uh, there. So it isn't uh, just through Just through the food, right, that we're eating. Yeah. So how long might an animal or a human um, experience antibiotic resistance after being exposed to these herbicides or the surfactants that we were talking about previously? Well, this combination of is you you basically have to see them together because um, it's uh, unclear since this is what's called an adaptive response. It's the bacteria responding. When the stimulus is taken away, they'll go back to normal. So it is unclear how long this uh, phenomenon would uh, happen for. Mm-hmm. That's probably uh, that's something take that still needs to be studied. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, we're at such an early stage here. It's This is just a realization. And as they're pointing out, there could be other, quote, biocides, other things, uh, other compounds that are in the environment that could be doing similar things. Uh, and those all need to be taken into account. Because, right. uh, you know, last thing we need to, to do is to act in ways to increase resistance. We want to do just the opposite, decrease the level of multiple antibiotic-resistant bacteria because um, antibiotic resistance is a global uh, public health threat, and if we don't do something about it, uh, uh, the predictions have been quite dire indeed. Well, let's talk about that because... 
currently, how big is this problem? In other words, how many people in the U.S. and around the world are infected with antibiotic-resistant illnesses, and how many actually die as a result? What's the scale of this problem? Well, um, I guess one way to to, uh, look at this is... um, if, 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 for example, you look at the CDC, they'll talk about, uh, in the U.S. alone, more than 2 million people are sickened every year with antibiotic-resistant infections, with at least 23,000 dying as a, as a um, result. Uh, so that's just, uh, and, you know, some of that's going to be coming from foodborne sources. Some of that's going to be coming from hospital-acquired infections. But just the, the question of resistance itself, there have been some global studies looked at, and uh, the predictions are, uh, given the increase in antibiotic use in some of the developing countries and elsewhere, that if actions are taken by 2050, the number of deaths worldwide from antibiotic-resistant infections will be greater than the number of deaths due to cancer. Oh, my. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's actually uh, that's a breathtaking statistic that came out of it. It's called the O'Neill Report, um, which is a global look at uh, the issue of antimicrobial resistance. And that's why there have been, for example, high-level meetings of the, U, of the United Nations General Assembly, all the global health folks, the World Health Organization, um, the Food and Agriculture Organization, Codex, they all uh, say that this is uh, global, the, one of the highest levels of global importance. You know, some have argued it's just as important or more important than climate change because some people will point out if we don't do something on, you know, climate change, that could kill us within 100 to 200 years. Well, if if we don't get control over this whole issue of antibiotic resistance, we're looking at a day potentially when bacteria... Um, would have resistance to all antibiotics, and then we'd be back to the days when simple things, simple infections could uh, lead to death or heavy or heavy injury because we do know that, for example, there is an antibiotic called colistin, which is an antibiotic of last resort for certain uh, diseases, and there are bacteria now that are starting to become resistant to colistin. Wow. And if those spread and they get into the same bacteria that are resistant to all these other antibiotics, then that means that bacteria can't be stopped with an antibiotic. That's kind of unbelievable. I mean, I think right. we've gotten so to that, this. That's yeah. why there's global agreement when, when you have, you know, the G20, the UN General Assembly, the World Health Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the World Bank, everyone is all saying this is of a crisis issue globally. And, you know, one of the answers has been there's got to be a reduction in the amount of antibiotics that are used in both human medicine and in uh, animal, ag- and in animal agriculture. I mean, right. the World Health Organization in November came out with an excellent report that talked about these problems and basically said that for animals, since they get the majority of antibiotics in the world, that uh, they should only be used for treatment of disease. They should not be used to um, 
for growth promotion purposes or what's often called disease prevention. Prophylaxis, that is when basically. That is when you give it to a bunch of healthy animals because you want to, quote, prevent them from getting a disease. So that they can be in filthy conditions and you put it in their right. feedstock and it's a prophylaxis, right. basically. Yeah. And right. we have talked about that on Go Green Radio, but this this idea of, you know, No, what, what's, what's uh, new here is most of the times when people have talked about resistance, it's always been about selecting for resistant bacteria and getting right. those genes that can... Uh, that code for that uh, uh, resistance. Here, they're starting to realize that that these compounds they can quote change the phenotype of the bacteria. They can make it appear to be more resistant than it really is because it'll mm-hmm. have these this adaptive mechanism. It's as though it, it can tell, oh my God, there's a lot of antibiotics in the area. I have to ramp up the efflux pump. Right, exactly. And, and that, that's that, one of the things that, that, that might we've be got like to revving study. your engine to 120, right. right? You can't keep that up all, all the time, but if in certain dangerous situations you need to do that, then that's a possibility. And we're going to talk about that in the next segment a little bit more. We've got so much more to cover with Dr. Michael Hansen. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Today's episode is just blowing my mind, and I'm so glad that you could all tune in. We're talking about a brand new study out of the University of Canterbury that shows that 
commonly used herbicides and their inert um, ingredients called surfactants, which are also found in foods like ice cream and things like cosmetics and mouthwash, even some pharmaceuticals, can cause antibiotic resistance. And this is a huge issue, a global issue of importance that uh, we talked about just at the end of the last segment. And in case you've just tuned in, our guest today couldn't be a better guest to help us understand this topic. It's Dr. Michael Hansen, and he's with Consumers Union, which publishes Consumer Reports. You know, one of the things that always puzzles me when we talk about these types of issues, Dr. Hansen, is how we got here. (laughs) How did this happen? And in a press release that accompanied the new research that's out of the University of Canterbury, Professor Jack um, Heinemann remarks, the sublethal effects of industrial manufactured chemical products should be considered by regulators when deciding whether the products are safe for their intended use. And for those of us like me who are laymen, help us understand how regulators currently evaluate the safety of chemical products. There's a disconnect here between what he's saying they should be considering and what they're currently considering when they decide, okay, this is safe for use. So help us understand that. Yeah, well, that's um, what Jack is pointing out, or what I should say Dr. Heinemann is pointing out, is a real problem with regulation of chemical or even pesticide safety. Um, You can think of antibiotics as a special case for pesticides because they're basically substances that are designed to kill living things. Right, that's what all biocides are. When those substances, when the living things that are being designed to be killed are pests, that's when these things are called pesticides. So normally what they've done previously, like for antibiotics, is the only questions they've usually asked before they're allowed to be added, they were to be added for feed or anything else, was simply um, are they effective and... Uh, do they cause problems in other species? There, there was no even really looking for whether they could select for resistance to, uh, to the antibiotic itself. That was only more recently considered, but even uh, with recent laws that require you to look at uh, antibiotic resistance, whether a given use will lead to more antibiotic resistance, that kind of testing isn't required for other compounds that are not uh, antibiotics. And so that's what the issue here is for these herbicides. They never had to be looked at to see whether they might uh, have an impact on bacteria, whether they might make, bac- make bacteria appear to be more resistant than they were. Nobody ever stopped to uh, ask that question. So. Right. It wasn't required to be looked at. That's what's important about this research. It's showing a new area here, and it's saying, look, we've only looked at these three herbicides, and we see the effect with all of them, right? Could this be true for other herbicides or other pesticides? It's just a wake-up call that this is a whole new area that needs to be looked at. This realization that these environmental chemicals that we're uh, putting in, they can have greater effects than we thought. Previously, the way they were regulated is an herbicide, does it kill a weed? And then, okay, does it cause acute illness or chronic illness or something? They would do these standard toxicology tests, but none of them would ever look at the effect they're having on bacteria, or even then it would only be whether the bacteria are killed or not. 
None of them right. would be looking at whether it's the sublethal effect where you can have an impact. You're not killing the bacteria, but you're changing it in such a way so it, quote, appears to be more resistant or becomes more resistant to uh, anti- antibiotics. That's not a good thing. No, it's but now that we not. realize that it's happening, all he's saying is the the regulators you need to wake up and recognize this because this could be a far more general, common uh, phenomena than than we've considered. But it clearly needs to be looked at because the fact that they were finding uh, uh, effects with the environmental chemical, which is the herbicide, but even some of the ingredients added to that, they were also having an effect. Now, it was weaker than the active ingredient itself, but they were still having these uh, effects, and that's something that yeah, that, that obviously has to should be looked, be looked at. at before these things are allowed to be put in the and, and environment. And that's particularly true for chemicals, which herbicides and other pesticides, by their very nature, they're designed to be toxic to something. Yeah. And so yeah. the side effects should be looked at more. I would argue that the same thing should be happening true, too, with the additives that are being added to foods, because those could have uh, effects that we don't know about. And clearly, they're finding that here with this polysorbate 80, uh, or, you know, tween 80 and uh, CMC. Right. And, you know, and on it, the flip side, when we're talking about the way that antibiotics are studied um, and, and how they determine a therapeutic dosage, is that done in vitro? Is that done in vivo where some of these outside influences on the body could be studied? Talk to us a no, little bit about how, how that they happens. do them is they'll culture those bacteria in the lab. Mm hmm. And then look at their given resistance levels. So how they come up with what's called a, a, a MIC, minimum inhibitory concentration. That'll be a concentration of the antibiotic that basically kills the vast majority of the bacteria, right? Right. That's often called a clinical breakpoint. So the idea is, is whatever that concentration is, which, you know, say kills 95% of the bacteria, that's the concentration of the antibiotic or the drug you want throughout the whole system where the bacteria that you're targeting are, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now, and that seems very isolated because that's right. In the because lab. what they're yeah. <laughs> what they're not realizing here is that those bacteria that are in that lab, if you would also add, for example, a low level of an herbicide in there. Yeah. Then when you test them for their reaction to antibiotics, they're going to appear to be more resistant than they would have this uh, heightened resistance phenotype. Exactly. Right? exactly. So that means they wouldn't be killed. So that means if those same bacteria were in a person being treated at that level, it's not going to kill all of them. So is that and sort of the a ones flaw that survive that, that you have to be yeah. worried about because they may carry a uh, genetic mutation that uh, that enhances that trait. So this is this whole area of this adaptive um, resistance because that can lead to the genetic resistance. That's why it's not a good thing. And mm-hmm. they're pointing out that bacteria do have this. Uh, capacity, and it looks like they can use ant, uh, herbicides. 
Wow. Now, and I've, I've got to you know, ask you and to, Maybe oh, what that is, is that's just a trigger that an antibiotic, that a bacteria knows, okay, I'm going into a dangerous situation. That is, there, there might be chemicals out there that can kill me, so I need to have my defenses up more. So sure. maybe as part of that signaling, these herbicides, they're being signaled as, the, the, you know, like an antibiotic or something. And right. so that can make the bacteria appear to be more resistant. Well, from the viewpoint of somebody that's sick, it doesn't matter whether the reason that that bacteria is resistant is because it has a genetic, uh, a gene inside it that makes it resistant or because it's phenotype right then because of the you know presence of the herbicide which caused the pumps to turn on much faster because it's not resistant at that same kind of concentration it's not being killed so, so there is, is it really an antibiotic failure. resistance or is it that the dosage is wrong well but you see that's it it's that the dosage is wrong because mm-hmm. that's why when they set these things they're setting them based on data they get from the lab. Right, right. It's very right, because, isolated. Because that's different. For, you know, for certain antibiotics, you need a lot more of the active ingredient per dose to have an effect than with others. So that's all determined. And that's why all these labs with all these different bacteria, they all come up with with what these MIC values are, these minimum inhibitory concentrations. That's yeah. a standard for how they determine, like, clinically what people should uh, start being exposed to. Right. Now, here's, so, you know, something that they Americans that, have a tendency that, that to believe gonna... that we can always innovate, that there's new technology and, and it'll be okay because we'll just invent something new. What are the chances that we can develop new antibiotics at a pace that's commiserate with the pace of the increasing antibiotic resistance that we're seeing in these illnesses? <laughs> I don't think we can. I mean, you try to, what you're saying is you're trying to win a, an evolution race with nature and natural selection, and that's just not going to happen. The best way to do that, the best way is to rather than figure out that there's a, uh, a technical solution, a technological fix for your problem. It's much better to try to understand uh, whether they're agricultural systems or what, but uh, whatever these systems we do need are, are the ones that minimize the need for use of things like antibiotics or, you know, um, pesticides and these other things. So mm-hmm. it's, it's understanding an ecosystem, for example, so that uh, with chickens you can raise them without any medically important anti- antibiotics, which we know can be done because the chicken industry, a bunch of it has clearly done that. Mm-hmm. So it can be done if there's enough economic incentive and things being uh, given to it, and there's increasing science showing that more diverse systems and that there are other ways to grow and raise things that, you know, minimize uh, health and other uh, problems. Because a lot for these uh, industrially raised animals, a lot of the main problems you're talking about are ones that are being created by the conditions, the rearing conditions themselves. Right, exactly. And and that is something that I'm happy to see, you know, becoming a more um, consumer-facing issue. A lot of consumers are beginning to exercise the power of the purse to demand um, 
better living conditions and health, more healthy animals, more healthy food. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have so much more with Dr. Michael Hansen. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. I am so glad that you could all join us because I am loving this topic and our guest today, not because it's a positive topic necessarily. Antibiotic resistance is a very serious and dire situation, but um, Dr. Michael Hansen has explained it so well and has really helped us understand this new groundbreaking uh, piece of research that's come out of the University of Canterbury, and I'm so glad that he could join us today. You know, we've talked this whole episode about antibiotic resistance and what is happening. And I have to ask, is it too late to preserve the efficacy of our current antibiotic inventory, Dr. Hansen? Or are there measures that we could be taking to become better stewards of our current antibiotics? Uh, Yeah, I think that there are actually, there's a lot of research showing that there are ways that you can raise animals and actually plants where you don't need to use um, anywhere near the amount of antibiotics or you can get rid of them uh, completely. So, for example, most organic systems, uh, they don't uh, allow the use of uh, antibiotics. Um, And then we also see in aquaculture systems, for example, in Norway uh, with salmon, they've been able to develop a vaccine. They can, they vaccinated all their uh, um, salmon, so the amount of antibiotics 
that are being used to produce salmon has dropped down to virtually nothing. Um, so, uh, and since there is this uh, explosion in um, fast food change and uh, other restaurants and that offering uh, meat from animals that have been raised without antibiotics or raised without medically important antibiotics. So there are all these different value-added value chains that are out there, and I do think there are systems that they've been showing that you can raise animals uh, humanely and minimize or eliminate the use of medically important antibiotics. Mm-hmm. And and I'm loving that trend. I, I'm seeing it all over the place, and I, I'm so excited about that. You know, a lot of our listeners are, are average citizens. They're everyday people living their lives. They're not scientists. They're not involved in this issue directly. But I, I'd like to hear from you what lesson or precautions could the everyday person be taking uh, based on this new research and based on our discussion today? What advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I mean, this is actually the, uh, very new stuff in its area. If uh, people are really concerned about the issue of um, antibiotics, they can, at least when they're e- eating meat products, they can go out and look for ones that are labeled as either being from animals raised without antibiotics or, or um, if they buy organic. Uh, but that's also true if uh, people go to a fast food chains. So we have seen, for example, um, the chicken industry seems to have gone uh, significant ways because when the data that was just released by the government, when you look at the amount of antibiotics used to produce a pound of chicken versus a pound of turkey or a pound of pork or a pound of beef, it's much, much smaller. Mm-hmm. So they've, they've clearly been able to move in the right direction. It's just more needs to be done. And I think part of the way that happens is through consumer concern and demand. So the mm-hmm. fact that you are seeing uh, this call for all these fast food chains, for, for example, to pledge to only um, serve meat from animals that are raised without medically important antibiotics is an important one. So the things you know people can take in their buying decisions, there is also uh, sometimes there are states, California has passed a bill that uh, is going to require uh, reporting for anti- antibiotic use and in agriculture, and that should lead to a, a reduction. So people mm-hmm. can get involved, I think, at the local level in their buying decisions. They can also get involved with org organizations that are doing policy work in this area, and there might be bills moving in some of the states this year. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that concerns me that we barely touched on is, you know, the issue of some of these chemicals ending up in agricultural water runoff and then hence in our water supply. And, you know, some of the previous episodes of Go Green Radio have talked about what we can and cannot with our current water treatment infrastructure treat for, you know, things that we that we can remove from our water if it's treated and things we can't. And I'm just wondering, you know, how these chemicals fall, which which area they fall into. I mean, are our water treatment plants equipped to remove these substances from our drinking water if they end up in the runoff? They could do some, but they're not going to remove much. And actually, that's a much 
broader question it because that is not has only to do with all the agricultural chemicals but with all the pharmaceutical products and then the personal care products the shampoos and conditioners and skins everything uh, that's on those all those synthetic ingredients those all go down um, and out through the uh, sewer and most of the sewage treatment plants they don't they don't treat for any of that stuff. Sewage treatment plants are for basic pathogens uh, and basic noxious compounds. But a lot of these, like levels of antibiotics or levels of hormones or levels of plastics or whatever, those um, that's a serious issue with wastewater treatment plants. And there are, I know there are groups in Europe and actually some here that are trying to figure out uh, what to do there because there there is a huge problem and it's not just coming from the agricultural area. There's all these industrial chemicals. Right. And if we're washing them right down the shower after we wash our hair, you know, I mean, this is yeah. something that we're, that we're all a part of. And I think, you know, this yep. is an important point because so many times it's very easy to point a finger at, you know, big chemical companies or, you know. No, it's, it's a lot of this <laughs> personal behavior. And then that yeah. stuff can go out down the drain into a waterway and it can actually have the levels of things that they're finding. They can have an effect on animals in the environment. So you can see endocrine-disrupting effects. You can see the sex of fish changing and morphology changing because of the levels of some of these compounds in the waterways. Right. Now, I know that you have done a lot of advocacy work. You testify, you know, in front of uh, various bodies like in, in D.C. and various states. Yeah, and we, I also yeah. do a lot of inter, international work. There's a uh-huh. Codex Alimentarius. Uh, it's the food standard setting organization of the U.N. It's jointly run by the World Health Organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization. And I often have gone there representing Consumers International because that's a global consortium of consumer organizations. We have 220 members in 115 countries. Wow. So and, on things like antibiotics that, or pesticides yeah. or GMOs, we've also done this work at the global level too. Yeah, and and what are some of the public policy measures that you advocate for? I mean, what's needed that we currently don't have in terms of public policy to address this? Well, with the whole area of antibiotic uh, use and actually uh, technical uh, policy, I'd say in the area of uh, GMOs, for example, they should be requiring safety assessments uh, before products are allowed on the market, and that's any product of a new technology, whether it's genetic engineering or gene editing or even nanotechnology or any of these other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you know, there has to be a better way we have of evaluating compounds before we're being allowed to add them to food or the environment. Absolutely, the do no harm, and and you know that sort of, uh, of mantra needs to needs to happen 
preemptively rather than waiting for ill effects to happen and then studying that in retrograde. Dr. Hansen, I can't thank you enough for being on Go Green Radio today and helping us to begin to understand this issue. I know that this is a brand new report, so there'll be more. Uh, and we'll be calling on you again uh, in the near future to keep us updated on how this progresses. Very important issue. So thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.